What's it like to live in an emerging country like Bulgaria? While Eric Rubin served as U.S. ambassador there, he admired seeing how the Bulgarians felt about their country, despite making some of the lowest salaries in Europe. And you feel that pride in the culture everywhere you go, and it infuses everything there. A retired couple from Seattle has been finding out what it's like to live abroad for nearly 10 years now. The senior nomads update us on their approach to nonstop travel. We are not on vacation. We are living our daily lives in other people's homes in countries around the world. There's a lot of world to see out there. And artist Sylvia Varang recounts what it felt like to hike through the vast open spaces of the Himalayan mountains. You know, you're just constantly surrounded by these peaks over 26,000 feet. They're just very regal and they're very, it, it is a very sacred, very pure place. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. It happened as I was filming a segment for my TV show in Bulgaria, of all places. An evening at the American Embassy clued me in to the important role our diplomats and their support staffs play all around the world. You'll get to meet the former ambassador in just a moment. Later on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Michael and Debbie Campbell, who've been living in Airbnbs now for about a thousand nights, tell us how they've been able to maintain their long-term world travels through the pandemic and what it's shown them about America and the rest of the world. Plus, artist and author Sylvia Varang tells us how she made a dream come true to explore the expansive landscapes of the Himalaya Mountains, an adventure that can change the way you view the world. A few years ago, while filming in Bulgaria, my crew and I were invited into the U.S. Embassy in Sofia. My evening there with Ambassador Eric Rubin and his staff reminded me of the passion and the talent and the importance of the dedicated people who make up our foreign service. I left there that evening with my head spinning, inspired, and I really felt like I've got to get Ambassador Rubin on my radio show so we could talk more about Bulgaria. And now we're doing just that. Ambassador Eric Rubin, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, can I call you Eric? Absolutely. Great. Do you remember that dinner when my crew uh, and I were invited into your living room? Oh, yes. It was a wonderful evening. Of course, you were really charming. and <laughs> But I also remember your staff. Your staff was amazing, and they were all just, they just felt like career Bulgarophiles as much as diplomats. Well, you know, we all uh, try to learn as much as possible and, and get into those countries and the societies that we're living in. But uh, many of my colleagues have a lot of languages and a lot of experience all over the world. And they do it in each place every time. I took a, a class as a history student at the University of Washington on uh, the complexities of Eastern, what we call Eastern Europe, you know. And uh, boy, it's something Americans don't appreciate. But anybody who's into Slavic ethnic challenges and heritage and culture and, and history, it's an amazing, an amazing corner of the planet to be into. And you were the ambassador to Bulgaria from 2016 to 2019. How did you end up in Bulgaria? Well, I had reached a point in my career where I hoped I might get picked for an ambassadorship. Ultimately, the decision is the president's, but I was recommended by the State Department, and they did ask me of the openings available. And I'd been to Bulgaria a long time ago for work and uh, knew a little bit about it, had traveled there, but just for brief periods, always liked it. But I did some digging and discovered, metaphorically, and discovered it, it's just an amazing place, a fascinating country. That's somewhat overlooked, and I thought it would be a little off the beaten path, but also really interesting and rewarding, which it did turn out to be. You know, I was traveling in Bulgaria, and I met Peace Corps workers, and um, they 
told me, they were kind of, they thought this was something fun to talk about. They said, of all the places where the Peace Corps uh, has workers, the place where volunteers are most likely to fall in love with a local and stay there is Bulgaria. There's something special about Bulgaria. People have an affinity for Bulgaria. Can you put your finger on that? It is true, and a lot of Americans have fallen in love both with Bulgarians and Bulgaria, uh, and we have a whole community of people who've stayed. You know, it is a stunningly beautiful country. It's in a great location in Europe, but on the crossroads between Europe and the Middle East and Asia. It's a wonderful culture. The cost of living is pretty low, for Europe at least. Mm-hmm. And it's very accessible. You know, sometimes other big, powerful countries have a culture that basically says we're the best and we're not interested in anybody else. The Bulgarians have had empires come and go and and sometimes run roughshod over them. And you don't find any of that cultural, I would say, arrogance to some extent. They tend to be very open and very friendly. And also, you know, since the end of the Cold War, generally quite pro-American. Yeah. You know, you say how beautiful Bulgaria is, but I, I thought right away, but there's very little connection with the United States. Poland, for example, has a, a huge connection, and I would think it's pretty much directly a result of how many people emigrated to the United States. Why are we so tuned into Poland, but not so much for Bulgarians here in the United States? Well, I think you're right that part of that is a, just a function of how many Americans can trace their heritage back to whatever country their ancestors are from or that they themselves immigrated from. Um, We do have a rapidly growing Bulgarian-American population. We have big communities. The biggest one is in the Chicago area. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's over 100,000 people, but still compared, obviously, to Poland or or other countries where Mm -hmm. Americans have ancestry, it's a lot smaller, but it's a much smaller country. Bulgaria uh, only has about 7 million people. Oh, so, I mean, I think Poland must have like 30 million or something. I think so, yeah. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is former Ambassador Eric Rubin. He's now the president of the American Foreign Service Association. He outlines their work and challenges at AFSA.org. You know, um, Eric, when we think about the objective of an ambassadorship like yours in Bulgaria, part of it is to strengthen those cultural ties. That's considered a healthy thing, isn't it? The more, the better. It is. And we do everything we can on on all levels that we can with students, with artists and performers, uh, with academics. In the tourist industry, you know, frankly, what you and people like you were doing is part of that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because my first exposure to Bulgaria was because the train went through there. I had to take the train from Europe to uh, Istanbul and it had to go through Bulgaria. And I met people there and I ended up falling in love with Bulgaria and going back there almost every every couple of years for, for decades. You know, I was reading somewhere, maybe it was on your website or, well, if, if we want to know more about your work as president of the American Foreign Service Association, uh, the website there is afsa.org, and you can learn about the practical value of our diplomatic corps. You were there in Bulgaria for three years. Um, our country spent a fair amount of money uh, supporting you and your colleagues, What do we have to show as American citizens for the money and the time and energy put into our diplomatic corps in Bulgaria? What's a practical rationale for spending that money? Well, I'm glad I can point to a a bunch of things. One of them is on the economic front. We increased investment in both countries. We now have significant Bulgarian investments creating jobs in the United States. And also we have significant American investment in Bulgaria, which creates jobs in Bulgaria, but brings revenues back to American firms and companies. 
Uh, we helped Bulgaria diversify its sources of energy, and we had American companies involved in almost all of that work, which, again, is jobs and, and income for our country, but also helping Bulgaria achieve diversification of energy is positive mm -hmm. for NATO and for all of our allied countries. And then we worked on social issues, for example, uh, working on programs to help disadvantaged Bulgarians, people from ethnic minorities like the Roma population. And that's something that was just basically Americans doing good to help others, which is something that I'm very proud of. We helped Bulgaria modernize its military. It's a member of NATO now, and they are buying American equipment. Not a lot. They're not a big country or rich country, but they want to have a, a modern military within NATO. And then we also help them with building structures of governance of their judiciary to help deal with corruption and to strengthen the rule of law, which under communism was completely subverted. Oh, it sounds like, I mean, if you took the X amount of dollars we invested in your work in Bulgaria, of all places, it sounds like a, a huge value, a very good investment, beautiful returns, and at the same time making our world a little more stable. I, it's just a beautiful thing. Well, thanks. I mean, that's what we want it to be, and mm -hmm. I think it's a lot of bang for the buck. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ambassador Eric Rubin. He graduated from Yale in 1985, and he's been in the Foreign Service ever since, with posts in Honduras, at Moscow during the, the years that the USSR was collapsing, Ukraine, Thailand, and Bulgaria. He was the U.S. Ambassador to Bulgaria for three years, 2016 to 2019. He's currently the president of the American Foreign Service Association and joins us today from Washington, D.C., you know, Eric, when you have guests, or when you had guests at your at your home, your beautiful home in Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria, and they were running around Bulgaria, what were some of the experiences you wanted to be sure they have? How did you counsel them? Well, I, I wanted to be sure they got out of the cities. There are incredible cities in Bulgaria, Sofia, the capital where we lived, but also Plovdiv, which is the ancient capital. It was the Roman capital. Its old name was Philippopolis. Uh, after Philip the Great of Macedon, and in addition, the, the cities on the coast, Varna and Burgas. So the urban areas are, are great and fascinating. But uh, I just love the mountains. They're not only great for skiing in the winter, which has become increasingly popular, but more importantly, there's so much history there because every empire, starting with Alexander the Great, uh, going through the Romans and the Byzantines and the Ottomans, and then two world wars, have left their traces, and you literally can dig into the earth almost anywhere in Bulgaria and, and find some archaeological treasures. I just was blown away at the rich archaeological heritage of the country. Also, the, the pride of the contemporary culture. And, and as you travel, when you get out of the city, get into the small towns, you've got this wonderful sort of salt-of-the-earth pride. Um, I remember being in one town, and it was right in the middle of the area that makes all the roses— they had a, a parade, and it was the annual day they celebrated their Cyrillic script, of all things. Bulgaria is one of the few countries in NATO, I think, that has the Cyrillic script rather than the script that we use. And they had a festival for it. They were so proud of it, and it was just charming. Yes, the Cyrillic script was invented by two Bulgarian monks, uh, Cyril and Methodius. They're very proud of that, and they're very proud that their language is very ancient and is probably closer to Old Church Slavonic than any other Slavic language. And you feel that pride in the culture everywhere you go, and it infuses everything there. People really do want you to learn about their culture. And at the same time, you know, the, the level of English spoken is incredible. It's better than most of Western Europe. 
And that's because they make a, a real effort to learn English. That's something to remember. Is you don't just a lot of times you'd think the small country, Bulgaria or Lithuania, would be a bigger language barrier challenge, but it's not. And young people, uh, educated people, people in tourism, very very likely to speak English these days. Eric, uh, you spent uh, three years in Bulgaria. What do you miss most about Bulgaria? Well, I think I miss the opportunity to meet all sorts of interesting people traveling around the country. Um, you know, especially since COVID, we don't travel much anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I miss that. But I also miss the food and the culture, and the opportunity to to represent our country in a in a beautiful place with with really lovely people who generally we're really interested in in learning more and uh, in many in many cases in coming to the United States. So. I miss that, but I I will be going back, I hope, often after this pandemic is over. I I intend to keep the the connection. That's great. Eric, thank you so much for, I'm going to say, Ambassador Rubin, thank you so much (laughs) for your years of service, 35 years in in the diplomatic corps, three years as the ambassador of Bulgaria, and best wishes now with your post as president of the American Foreign Service Association, taking care of the needs and the best you can uh, of 17,000 people dedicated to making this world a more stable and safe place and helping be sure that America has a a positive role in that aspiration. Thanks again, Eric, and, and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. We'll head for the Himalayas in a bit, but next, the senior nomads update us on how they keep traveling full-time and what it's like to be retirees on the road. It's Travel with Rick Steves. You don't have to be in college to take a gap year to travel the world. In fact, Michael and Debbie Campbell decided that instead of retiring at home and taking an occasional trip, they'd rather hit the road full-time. That was nearly 10 years ago, and they're still at it. They rely on Airbnb home shares for where they call home. The senior nomads are back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to update us on their adventures through international pandemic lockdowns and beyond. Debbie and Michael, thanks for coming back. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Great to be here. So last time we talked, you'd been retired for about four years and you'd visited 50 countries. Now you've been on the road for nine years and you've added an additional 35 countries. That's about seven countries per year. Yep. How fast do you move around? Uh, what, what are the kind of the, the, the parameters of this? Well, the pandemic slowed us down a little bit, just like it did everyone else. But right. before that, chief travel planner over here had us on a pretty robust schedule. Yeah. There's a lot of world to see out there. And then when you, is it a discussion of, uh, do you want to stay five days or, or 25 days? I mean, how do you figure that out? Sometimes we'll stay in a country for a length of time uh-huh. and visit various cities. Stay four or five places? I think the average stay in the beginning was about a week, uh-huh. but there was a long stay was two weeks, and then COVID happened, right? and then we were kind of stuck like so many other people for four months. Oh, yeah. You know, nine years ago, you started out um, green and fresh and lively and <laughs> so excited with this future. Now, this is like 3,000 nights later. I'll tell you what, it's 300 kitchens later, 300 showers later, 300 beds later. It's later. Yeah. So how has your how has your approach changed with road maturity, let's call it? Oh, that's an excellent term. Yeah. Um, we are not driven to see every single thing there is in a city. Right. We never really have been. But I think that even though it sounds like we're not in a place for very long, we're living there while we're there. So yeah. it's relaxing to spend a week in Florence and not do every single thing there is to do. And yeah. 
We have a philosophy. We are not on vacation. We are living our daily lives in other people's homes in countries around the world. So that's what we do. Some nights we stay in and play Scrabble. Sometimes we just go for a long walk and go through the markets. A day can be just a regular day for us. Just happens to be in one of the beautiful cities in the world. What have been the highlights of your of your travels? Would you say two or three places that really were like, wow, this is this is the life. We've been back to Croatia quite a few times and really like Croatia. Going to Australia, New Zealand was um, those were memorable. We've been to the Ukraine and went to Chernobyl. Huh. Yeah, but um, it's really we've made friends in so many places around the world. Yeah, and so sometimes we'll do follow up with. With friends you know, we've made. I was going to ask you about that I was, I was, as I was thinking of your life because it's so, um, it's kind of seductive, but it's, it's also kind of uh, mysterious. You're on the road. People are social creatures, and a lot of us are anchored in one community. You're not anchored in one community, uh, but you're, you still must socialize. What are the tricks on the road? How do you stay social, or do you change in your social muscles, you know? <laughs> well, the good news is we love each other. So, <laughs> is that it? You, your social world is each other. You've spent more time together don't, than most married couples. <laughs> don't do this if you don't really, really like yeah. the person you're married to right. or traveling with. Um, Michael's very gregarious. He talks to strangers far more than I do. Uh-huh. And um, I'll be walking down the street and turn around, and he's just back there talking to somebody about politics, no yeah. doubt. Uh-huh. And then with our Facebook group, it's really been nice because we have a lot of people that are interested in doing what we're doing. So we so that would be um, online. Yeah, online. Mostly, yeah. yeah. But uh, we've we've but, also had meetups, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, of people you, that follow you, us. If you come into a new place and you're settling in, do you have, like, go-to activities? Some people are members of the Rotary Club and they'll check out mm-hmm. that. Other people play chess in the park. Mm-hmm, Other people, mm-hmm. you know, what do you find is a great way when you're settling into... Make a few contacts and, and have some relations, other than Michael's extrovertism. <laughs> <laughs> well, we consider our Airbnb hosts our friend in the next city. So we've uh-huh. started a relationship with them before we even arrive, and hopefully we'll meet them in person. So we start there, and then we always take a free walking tour the first day that we can. Yeah, And we've made friends in that way. And uh-huh. um, we have contacted some expat groups in some cities, and in San Miguel we joined the Scrabble Club and made friends there. There you go. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And I'm I'm a huge sports fan. That was my career. And so we're always looking for what sports events can we go to. And oftentimes that revolves around soccer slash football. And so that's, you know, it's kind of, hey, are, is there a game in town? How do I get a ticket? Where? How do I get there? It's 9 o'clock at night it starts. And, and a lot of these, I would imagine, are not in giant stadiums with 80,000 people, but small-town soccer arenas. A mix. Yeah, I can remember a, a football match we went to in Sarajevo in Bosnia where the, you know, it's just a little teeny town and yeah. the quality of the football is, you know. That's beside marginal. the point. <laughs> marginal, but that's beside the point. <laughs> no, that's, okay. that's great. It's the cultural experience of being with the people. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Michael and Debbie Campbell. They call themselves the Senior Nomads. They've been spending their retirement seeing the world, and they've joined us here in our Seattle area studio while taking a break from their adventures in Mexico and Latin America before switching gears and heading back to Europe. They've written a book called Your Keys, Our Home, and it talks about the places and the people they've met and, you know, how that makes them feel at home all over the world. You can keep up with their adventures on Instagram or Facebook under The Senior Nomads. And there's a link to our 2017 interview with the Campbells in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. 
So you guys have been going five years since I've talked to you, packing around the world, staying mostly in Airbnb-type places and getting to know the world. It's just an alternative. I guess you figured out one day that you could spend X amount of money retired just here, or you could take that money and essentially be on the road. Yeah, it turns out if if we're really careful with our spending, we track it daily um, and stay within our kind of financial guardrails. Right. Um, you know, we should be able to keep doing it for... So what are those financial guardrails? What is your average cost per night would you stay? So when we started, um, the first time somebody interviewed us, we said, we're going to share our Airbnb, our nightly cost. It was mm-hmm. $90 a mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been able to actually stick with that over the nine years. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't. We decided not to share you know, our food and our travel because we didn't want to discourage anybody from following their own North Star travel dreams with mm-hmm. like, oh, we don't have as much money as Michael and Debbie. Oh, right. We can't afford to do it. Right. Um, well, you could do it so many different ways. You can couch sure. surf. You could... I was just in a hotel room in Vienna marveling at the two meals I had bought for $8 each yeah. at the deli, you yeah. know. Yeah. Like you said, Debbie, you're, it's different than being on a vacation where you have to have a memorable dinner every night. You don't have a memorable dinner every night when you're at home. Excuse me? You know, you go to the refrigerator. (laughs) I cook many memorable dinners. Memorable dinners. There you go. For the cost of groceries, which anywhere in the world is cheaper cheaper than than a hometown restaurant. So for people who are dreaming about this, if you have $100 a night for your accommodations for two people, you can do that. That's a start. And you could do it for less. And you you could could do do it for less. less. Yeah. Now, packing, you're on the road eternally. Do you have basically just one one bag? I mean, or do you say, now we're going to pack heavy because we're on the road forever? First of all, can we just thank you for Rick Steves packing cubes? Oh, really? They yeah, just, people love those oh things. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you. Oh, that's good they to hear. They make such a difference. It's like having a chest of drawers in your duffel bag, you know, and everything's in its, if you're disciplined, everything's in its little packing cube. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's very true. Well, we have two um, 26-inch Duffels from REI. Uh-huh. Our children are what they are really now. Right. They've been yeah. with us for yeah. nine years. They've never worn out. So we do pack it to its fullest capacity. Right. Because we're not coming home for a year. Yeah. And it's not like you're continuously uprooted. You you have a day when you're relocating or a couple of days when you're relocating and then you're burdened with your bags. But yeah. the rest of the time you're settled. Yep. You're there for a week. I mean, if I'm moving to a different hotel every night, I want to pack really mobile. Yeah. 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 But if I'm staying put, it's not so important. So I think the airline weight of the 23 kilograms yep. is kind of the that's threshold true. for that's us. True. So um, if you get a new T-shirt, out goes an old one. And so we just try and stay underneath that 23 kilo. You you wrote about how you have a, you actually take your own pillow. And that sounds like I can understand. I mean, it's sort of a, like a blankie or a, a your, blankie. Te- your teddy bear or something <laughs> like that, your slippers. So <laughs> is that your blankie is that's your our, pillow? That's our blankies. And yeah, you, you cuddle up into a new bed because you're into new beds every week or so on average. Uh, and you've got your old the, I've been the in, pillow that knows you. We've slept in so many beds, I can't even tell you what kind of mattress I like anymore. Just give me a mattress. It's like, do you like firm ones or soft ones? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, the pillow's always there for me. Yeah. <laughs> and here's a practical thing. Um, you sold your home. You don't have any real address is mail even a concern? What do you, how do you, I mean, who are you? Where are you? What, what, what? Are you just like stealth on this planet? Are, are you from the FBI? Or the IRS? Yeah. Um, oh, that's it. That, that, there's certain people that have to get a hold of you. That is true. How does one do that if you're on the road? Well, we have a, a son who lets us use his address and his Xfinity account. 
Um, so <laughs> those oh, are the good. two so things. If you've got kids, you can you can <laughs> let that be your mailbox. But we do have a mailbox that we've used the whole time, and we'll call them every now and again and say, "Is anything important coming?" I mail? see. But yeah. But I mean, I think as everybody knows that you can try and go as paperless as possible. Yeah. Oh. So online banking, online bill paying, online everything. And that's something I was curious about also is a lot of older travelers, and you guys are the senior nomads. Um, <laughs> yes, we are. You've been married 43 years, so people can do the arithmetic. Um, <laughs> are you, older travelers tend to be technophobes, uh, and they, you know, they're kind of old school. But if you're doing what you're doing, you probably have to be pretty good with you your do. digital communication. You, you, can't, you can't just I th- I think relax we gotta, those muscles. Yeah, we give ourselves a gold star. We're, yeah. we're trying to learn, trying to keep up call the kids when you're in a jam and they right. they help you out. So what's what's something that you find really an amazing tool that you would you would encourage other people to get good at when they're on the road as far as you know digital communications and online I think stuff. Google Maps is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um it's so much beyond putting I'm going to drive to the grocery store. It interfaces with the public transportation systems in yes. so many cities. Somebody just reminded me, Google Maps, it, it figures out your, your public transportation connections. Yeah, like in Warsaw and in Buenos Aires. And, you know, so you're not, not Beijing, yeah. but anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, not Beijing. But. I'm going to, because I've always, I mean, I know how to use Google Maps, but I never thought about it as a guide to public transportation connections, but it makes it so straightforward. Totally. And, you know, and so, also walking. Mm-hmm. The walking directions are really helpful. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're dreaming about living on the road for our retirement. We're joined by Debbie and Michael Campbell, and they've been doing this for nine years. They are the senior nomads, and you can learn more about all the stuff that they do in their blog posts and all their updates at their website. It's seniornomads.com. A couple more questions in our time remaining. First of all, do you ever just lay there in bed in the morning with your eyes closed and have to think for a moment, where am I? Uh, that happens in the kitchen. In the kitchen? Yeah, n- yeah, when I think, did I, was there a frying pan? Did I see, was uh, the Instapot, what? I mean, sometimes I get yeah. a little squirrely there. I love there, that. But... I love that kind of disorientation. <laughs> I just, it it kind of freaks me out because what, where the heck am I? And I just lay there and I, it's a fun little puzzle. Like, oh, yes, I'm in Madrid. Oh, I'm sure that happens to you. (laughs) I'm moving around faster than you guys are when I'm going, so you're sort of settled. And when you're on the road, again, you've been on the road nine years, how is your, apart from COVID, you know, but just in general, how is healthcare? What do you do for healthcare? We have, we do have medical insurance that's good outside the U.S. Okay. Yeah. Um, So we have coverage Uh um, and we keep our coverage in the U.S. as well. Because a lot of people just kind of think, I can't be sick overseas. Yeah. Like, like there's only doctors in the United States. Exactly. Yeah. No, you've, we, you've been okay. We've been okay, and we've had a couple instances where we needed to see a doctor. It's without any problems at all. We paid cash, and it's it's just not an issue. But I would say 100% people should have international travel insurance. So you got to know how that works because yeah. some people... You wouldn't want to be caught out without it. No. Yeah. So you want that, and you want to know that it's solid yeah. Yeah. overseas and how, then, to, how it works. Yeah. Paying doctor's visits are $25 in some countries, and yeah. you get excellent care. People so. people chuckle about that because Americans are so shell-shocked by health care costs. And yeah. Then yeah, yeah. You know, when you're overseas, you kind of go, really? And another question sort of related to health care is your relationship. What are your warnings and your tips for anybody who's embarking on this <laughs> long-term adventure with a, with a tiny crew of two? So it's like the Olympics in the rowing event, and there's the different shells in different configurations. Yeah. So we're a two-person shell rowing in the same direction. There's only two of us in the boat. We each have an oar, and it's up to us to make it work. So you're in the same shell. 
we're in the same show. Because some people want individual little, they call them duck, duckies, <laughs> and they go on their own. Yeah, let's get two kayaks it's been, Yeah, It's been wonderful so for team. our marriage. Really? Yeah. Isn't that totally. great? Yeah. After retiring in 2013, Michael and Debbie Campbell felt they had at least one big adventure left. So they packed their duffels and bought a one-way ticket to Europe to see what staying in home shares would be like. After staying at Airbnbs in more than 85 countries now, the Campbells share their travel tips and observations as the senior nomads on social media, in their book, Your Keys, Our Home, and on their website, seniornomads.org. When you're on the road, do you have rituals? That must be kind of fun to develop on-the-road rituals. What's, what's a couple examples? Well, we do like to play Willie Nelson's On the Road Again when we're packing. Okay. Um, we put our pillows into our suitcases at the very end, and they'd sit on top, ready to go to the next destination. Right. We have a luggage scale. A luggage scale. Weighing the bags just before we You have a luggage scale. Yeah. You yeah. travel with it. Absolutely, because, yeah, we, we don't want to be over 23 kilos when we fly. That's right. Yeah. Nobody wants that embarrassing take things out of your suitcase experience right. yeah. at the airport. <laughs> you, know, so. you can wear a coat with your pockets full of your stuff. Oh, I've done stuff. it. We've done it. When, oh, we've, yeah. when we've had to switch to Ryanair and we, we have to put stuff down our coat sleeves, absolutely. And also, I would remind people, you know, you're not hiking in the mountains. You've got department stores just around the corner. You can exactly. buy what you need. And yes. we, we travel with our games. We play a lot of Scrabble and Backgammon and Rummy uh-huh. Cube and cards. And so we just really enjoy being together. So you've been doing this now. You're going to continue doing it, sounds like. How have you changed in 3,000 Nights on the Road? together? Oh, I think that we've become more patient with each other, more patient with other people. I feel like we uh, just are more accepting of other cultures and other ways of doing things. And, you know, I just, we've never had that mindset that, well, in America, we, because we just don't use that. Um, We just embrace where we are and live in the moment. I think we're more accepting of diversity uh, of all of all kinds. And so, when you think of our country and the struggles we're in right now, because by any estimate, from any political perspective, our country is really in difficult times as far as this divisiveness and this fear. From people who have lived on the road, and the the planet is your home country, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. What would you say to Mister and Missus America right now? I would say, you know, there's other countries that have fallen into civil war, whether it's Rwanda or Colombia, countries that we visited. And let's be careful here that we don't let the divisiveness drive us all the way to yeah. to that. And it's, it is possible. It happens. And, and the excuses for some of these wars are pretty small when you think of the cost they pay for not figuring it out and giving everybody a little wiggle room. Yeah. Other countries have learned the hard way. And people think it's dangerous here, and it is dangerous here. It's becoming a dangerous country. I just had somebody write me a note saying, how can you ride a bike in the Netherlands where people don't wear helmets? And a Dutch person would probably say, how can you go out in the street in a country where everybody's got a gun? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's a different sensibility. And not again, it's not a right or a wrong thing. It's just when you travel around the world, you learn a lot. A lot of times you learn more about your own home by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. Everyone should travel for that very reason. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been traveling right now thanks to Debbie and Michael Campbell, the senior nomads. Once again, if you want to be up to date on their adventures, if you're inspired to do this yourself, they've got all sorts of really practical information. Their website is seniornomads.com. Debbie and Michael, let's check in in another few hundred (laughs) <laughs> overnights away and see how you're doing. Great. Happy travels. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Thank you. 
Debbie Campbell hosts an online Let's Talk Travel show Thursdays at leapchats.com. You'll find links to the work of the senior nomads with the notes to this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Where have you always dreamed of visiting? Sylvia Varang felt the call to the wide open spaces of the Himalaya Mountains. From Kathmandu, she took a bus to the end of the line and just kept on walking for another 500 miles. Sylvia's turned her trip journal into a book and tells us what the adventure taught her next on Travel with Rick Steves. The Grand Arc of the Himalayan mountain range spans across five countries from Pakistan all the way over to Bhutan. The Khumbu region in Nepal is the crown jewel, home to the highest mountains in the world. Expansive scenery, soaring peaks, ancient cultures, and the need to tackle extreme conditions have long made Nepal an adventurer's paradise. Now, back in 1984, when Gore-Tex was newly invented and Kathmandu was just a sleepy outpost, a young American woman named Sylvia Varange set out on a three-month, 500-mile-long trek across the Himalayas. This was a time when few single women attempted such an expedition. She relives her adventure in her book, Two Breaths, One Step, as a historical snapshot of the region and a travelogue of this once-in-a-lifetime journey. Sylvia is an artist now and a writer who lives in California, and she joins us to tell us about her trip. Sylvia, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Rick. It's great to be here. So that was quite an adventure, especially back in the 80s. Uh, How did you choose to go to Nepal and on such a trek way back then? Well, certain places in the world have always just called to me. I have a great love for mountains and the high altitudes and an acquaintance who had been to the Himalayas several times, but not this particular region, was going. And when he mentioned that, I instantly knew I was going, although um, I really had no idea how that was going to happen. <laughs> ah, you ended up going with a with, um, couple of people, and you had porters. I, you wrote about the experience with your porters and how they would go ahead and prepare the meals. And tell me about the sort of the routine of a day. How, how would a typical day trekking in the Himalayas have been for you? Well, the routine of the day was, um, I, I'm not a morning person, <laughs> but I always say I can get up early in the morning when someone wakes me up with tea and biscuits, which is what the porters did. <laughs> so we'd get up early, I, I don't know, maybe five or so, and just have tea and basically pack up and, and start hiking, maybe stopping for breakfast, something to eat around nine or so, and that would usually just be something cold that we carried. And each day we would generally, we, we'd hike up a mountain down the other side, cross some amazing river valley, and then up another mountain. Uh, we'd stop around two or so for a, a main meal of the day, and they have a tradition of stopping a, lo- a long time because they're preparing the food, it's hot food, and then hiking for the afternoon till you get to a place you can uh, camp for the night. And, and what was the, the general route from where to where? The general route, um, well, it's fascinating. At this time in history, uh, in the early 80s, Nepal had the fewest roads of anywhere in the world. And if you wanted to go anywhere, you basically walked. So what we did is we just took a bus to the end of the road, got off the bus, and started walking. That bus was from Kathmandu. Mm. And we walked towards the Himalayas, which you could start seeing, and that trek was 350 miles. And interestingly, when we were coming back, they'd added another mile or so to the road. 
<laughs> you know, you know, I was there just a couple years before you, and I'll never re- forget flying from Pokhara over to uh, Kathmandu across Nepal in a little airplane and, and realizing there are no roads down here that I could see. So basically, trekking was the way you got around uh, in, in, to a great extent in that entire country, right? Yeah, exactly. And if you wanted anything, you know, anything in the mountains, I mean, people that live there, it had to be walked in, which explains why when I was there, none of the houses, even in the little towns, none of them had glass windows. They had wooden shutters. Um, but you'd see every every manner of things being carried on the backs of Oh, uh, I see. Nepalese. They wouldn't have glass because somebody would have to walk it in. So they just try to it, get exactly. what they had locally. Now, your descriptions, I just love your descriptions. You know, different kinds of tea, cold baths in the rivers, uh, the clouds and the fog dissipating to reveal grand views. Tell us, were you writing this down as you went, or did you remember this uh, decades later when you decided to write the book? Oh, I I kept an extensive journal while I was doing this trip, and I I really didn't occur to me to write a book till just just a few years ago. And I, I still have that journal as well as my original maps, which were incredibly basic back then. It was very hard to get any kind of uh, detailed maps. I did the same thing. I was there a couple years before you, and I wrote a 60,000-word journal. And it's a book that I wrote, and I didn't even know I was writing a book, but I just had a need to write it down. Did you have a sense that that you were experiencing something you'd want to be able to share with loved ones later, or did you write it for yourself, or was it just a way to clarify your thoughts as you went? I think for me, it's probably a way to clarify my thoughts and also just to anchor me in a place, to give me some sense of of uh, being there, to, to root myself, or I, I get kind of a drift. You wrote beautifully about um, spinning prayer wheels as you left a village. Tell me a little bit about what that was like, those those water wheels. Well, I think because everything probably was so different for me and so new, you know, I'm a, I'm definitely a dyed-in-the-wool Westerner, and here I am arriving in a little village, which could be just two or three, you know, huts, and there's a, a water wheel on the uh, on the stream coming into the village. It's it's a large drum that's filled with prayers written down on well pieces of uh, parchment, and it, the water is spinning it. And this prayer wheel is absolutely exquisite. It could be anywhere from one foot to maybe quite large, five feet high, uh, beautifully painted, beautifully maintained. And the sole purpose of this prayer wheel is to send out blessings and prayers across the landscape. And and I just thought, isn't that fascinating? I mean, there's no use to this water wheel whatsoever in terms of... Uh, mechanically or, right. you know, it's not doing anything. It's not running a mill. It was power. It was powering <laughs> blessings. It was flinging them into the cosmos. Yeah, and I just thought, isn't that just fascinating? I could probably uh, do with that in our little town Well, here. it's a beautiful thing. And then, uh, you know, apparently it was sort of a ritual when you left a town, even a tiny little hamlet, and you would just walk by without even slowing down, and you could just, you know, drag your fingers over those prayer wheels and send them spinning as you left. Exactly. As you entered and as you left each village, there was always prayer wheels. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and our guest today is Sylvia Varange. And she's a painter, a writer, a teacher from California who's long wandered to remote corners of the world. She features one such journey 
in her book, Two Breaths, One Step. It details her 500-mile trek through the Himalayas as a young woman back in the 1980s. Her upcoming book is titled, Where People Are Wildflowers, and it'll describe her experience hiking the Inca Trail in Peru. Her website is sylviaverange.com. That's V-E-R-A-N-G-E. Sylvia, did you think much about thin places? I've always been intrigued by this notion that there are some thin places on this earth that are kind of closer to the heavens, you know, or heaven. And you you really feel that there's, now maybe it was thin altitude up there, but but you must have met interesting holy men on the trail in the middle of nowhere, and you had this interesting mix of Buddhism and Hinduism. What? How did that strike you when you're out there in the middle of Nepal? Well, I don't know if one can understand it unless they're there, but you're right. The the air is very thin. It's just classically this rarefied air, which explains why for thousands of years this area of the world has been so revered. And, you you know, you're just constantly surrounded by these peaks over 26,000 feet. They're just very regal, and they're very—it it is a very sacred, very pure place. Um, I think because I'm always drawn to the high altitude, it's— maybe more accessible for me there. But, of course, there's other places in the world you can feel this too. But I, I was very privileged one day. Um, I was walking once again by myself because the people I was with were always miles ahead of me. And I saw these it passed me from behind. I hadn't heard them at all. These two wandering sadhus. And a sadhu is a like a religious person. It's a tradition in the East and they live uh, they they don't they don't have any permanent housing or buy food or or have money their whole life is um a spiritual quest and they they move from town to town and the culture there honors them by giving them food or a place to stay but here i am in the middle of nowhere they're carrying absolutely nothing they're wearing like a a robe with very coarse material and when they went by me, it was as though they weren't even walking. They seemed to just float by me. It was the most ethereal experience. Wow. You have to be in a certain uh, mindset where you're open to that. Because a lot of people could look at that person and just think, oh, look at his toes. He hasn't bathed for weeks. Or that matted hair. Or why do they put that on their faces? But you could also look at it like they're just floating by you, bringing all sorts of... Uh, thoughtfulness from village to village. Well, you know, it's really interesting you say that because I had an extraordinary experience upon my return. I'd been there for three months. I come back here and I met somebody, uh, kind of an acquaintance, that was just about to leave for a year. And I was so excited to share my experience. I just had so much joy I wanted to share. And then I ran into them like less than a month later and I went, oh, my goodness, what, what what are you doing here? I thought you guys went for a year. And they, much to my amazement, they said, oh, oh, my gosh, we had to come home. We just couldn't stand it. There was, you know, no hygiene, no drinking water, no electricity, and on and on. Oh, and I, yeah, I thought, sp- wow, you know, they're absolutely right. There, there was no drinking water. There was no hygiene. But I just kind of went right over all that and saw so much beauty. But... You're really right. It's people see very differently. So what what goes through your mind when you're on top of a mountain in, in the Himalayas all alone? 
gosh, I'm rather speechless. I, I would say it's a more, um, I, I don't know what other word to use other than spiritual. It's just on another level. It's a, it's a. Spiritual it's, is it's, it. You're, you know, what does it mean yeah. to be human? Why are we here? Exactly. And there's a tremendous sense of peace. Yeah. Even if it's windy, even if it's it's that sense of emptiness, and yeah, that's exactly it's. I'm, I've always been fascinated by what it means to be human, and and also understanding one's place in the world. Um, I find that that that's one real great difference, also. And in this area where I was, uh, very very poor country. People are very poor materially, economically. Um, and yet their inner life is so rich, and they have a very keen sense of their place in the world. I think many of us in the West often feel rather adrift in the world, not not really anchored. Mm. It's poignant to me when people say, have a safe trip. Sometimes I think that means have a trip where you're not going to go outside of your borders, where you're not going to find something new that might make you reassess what you think is the norm or how you want to live your life. You're going you're gonna to scramble things up if you have a... Uh, <laughs> it, to me, that's... That's really interesting. I was recently somewhere and I wanted to go on this adventure and I just thought for sure somebody would want to join me. It involved a couple days, you know, rather remote, a different language, this, that, and the other. And I, I, I just couldn't understand. Nobody wanted to go with me. And then one of my an acquaintances said, well, maybe no one else is as adventuresome as you are. And frankly, I don't really think of myself as adventuresome, as much more curious. I, I'm just always very curious about how other people live. And, of course, the landscape endlessly inspires me. Well, you even wrote, I remember you wrote in your book, The Landscape Held Me Close. Well, tell us more about how the landscape holds you close. Well... It just provides a space of refuge. I, I remember one year, uh, decades ago, it was, it was really rough. I had a lot of deaths of people very close to me. And I didn't consciously decide this, but a friend of mine said, uh, Sylvia, you have to go up to the mountains. And I really wasn't in any shape to go anywhere. But but I went, and I ended up going just over and over again over a few-month period. And it was really comforting to be in a space that I knew was, in human terms, pretty much not going to change. So I, I wanted to be around something solid, something firm. And the mountains have never let me down in that respect. They're, they're um, you know, they can be dangerous, the weather and all that, but they, they're very solid and they, you know where you are with them. You know, that's the landscape holding you close giving you some firm footing and putting things in perspective. And it's kind of humbling, but it's also empowering. Sylvia Varang is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Sylvia credits her degree in landscape architecture with influencing the bold colors and forms she uses in her landscape paintings. She describes what three months hiking in the Himalayas showed her in her book, Two Breaths, One Step. Sylvia also shows samples of her artwork from Nepal at twobreathsonestep.com. While in Nepal, Sylvia visited one of the highest villages in the world, the remote settlement of Gokyo, just because the name intrigued her. You can hear about that in an extra to today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. You know, I, I've always thought about the, the value of culture shock, and I think there's a... Some people try to avoid it. I think it's a good thing. I think it's the, the growing pains of a broadening perspective. And the flip side of culture shock is what I call culture shock in reverse, 
when you finally go back home, in your case, back to California, in my case, back to Seattle, uh, things are unsettling. And, and you wrote about that a little bit in your, in your book. Talk about how your experience in Nepal actually gave you a little bit of culture shock in reverse. Yes, I remember exactly. I came home from Nepal, and one day I needed to go to the grocery store. I needed to get some food. But then when I, when I went to the produce, I, I, just, I just was overwhelmed by the sheer variety and quantity of food. I mean, we weren't hungry, but we just ate what we could find. It wasn't like we were carrying food for three months. We'd get to a village and see who had extra food, and we'd scrounge around and try and buy some food. But when I came back, so the overwhelming produce, and then when I went to the canned section, (laughs) I simply short-circuited. I mean, there was way too many choices. Did I want cream, Uh. corn, cream, (laughs) corn with salt, no salt? It, there were there were like a dozen kinds of corn, and I just I just gave up. I couldn't I couldn't function, and I had to leave the the grocery store empty-handed. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear you, to hear you say it, it short-circuited you. That's the perfect word for culture shock and reverse. You're just surrounded by choices, you know. When most of the world would just love to have one of those choices, and here we spend a lot of energy figuring out which one do we want. And there's that's just the tip of that culture shock and reverse iceberg, I think. Sylvia, this has been so interesting talking to you. Congratulations on your book, Two Breaths, One Step. And after a trek like that, I would imagine you have intangible souvenirs, just ways that that trip shaped your outlook that, over the decades, stay with you. Let's finish off just with a few thoughts from you about how the investment of time and and sweat and taking those risks and climbing those ridges in Nepal back four decades ago, how that shaped your life from the perspective you have now? I think most importantly, just overwhelming gratitude. I mean, there's no denying. I'm incredibly privileged. I mean, I I live in California. I, I have a tremendous amount of freedom. I mean, I'm thinking about that a lot these days with all the conflicts uh, endlessly going on in the world. I mean, I, I can go to another country. I can travel. I, I have food. And so I really value looking at things deeply, you know, whether that's a flower or a, whatever it is. I just I just value, a, I guess you might call it a slower rhythm, and, and then just the sense of gratitude. Sylvia, you have just very eloquently described the, the beauty and the value of travel. This is an experience you had back when you were just figuring out what you're going to do with your life, I would imagine. And now you've got the gratitude and you know how to be in the moment, inspired by the people you met and the experiences you had in Nepal in 1984. It's really an inspiration. It's so fun to talk with you, Sylvia, and congratulations on your book, Two Breaths, One Step, and continued happy travels. Thank you. Namaste. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Thanks to our colleagues at Feature Story News in Washington and at the UC Berkeley Advanced Media Studios for their help this week. Find web links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. 
If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.